This is the Nomad Futurist Podcast, a podcast about the evolution of technology, society, and transformation. Connect with us, share your thoughts with us at nomadfuturist.com. Let's get this started. Here are Phil and Nabil. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Nomad Futurist Podcast. This is Nabil Mahmood, your host from Kona, Hawaii. This is Philip Koblenz, your co-host from Montclair, New Jersey. I'm Charles Raho, coming from New York City, Manhattan, and uh, trying to enjoy a nice, almost winter fall day, I guess. Well, Charles, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. I know you used to live on the West Coast, and recently I, I, I reckon that you moved back to the East Coast. What was the reason behind that big old change? Yeah, so um, to a certain extent, no good one. The, so born and raised in Southern California, spent six months living up in Tahoe. Uh, my my wife at the time had a project up there and so lived there for a little bit. But otherwise, I spent my entire life in sunny Southern California. And everyone goes, oh, that's amazing. But I was actually sort of ready for a change. And so my, my now wife, um, at the time my fiancé, um, she's a classically trained singer. We both sort of like cities and we were just talking one day and oh, to, to this day, we still don't exactly remember the conversation that that led us to decide that we were going to move to New York. But at some point we decided it and we just did it. So for no good reason other than we love New York and we decided that we wanted something different. And so uh, two and a half years later, here we are. I mean, if you had to pick a city, I think you picked right. Uh, if that's any if that's any solace. I, I completely concur. The The only other city that's up there for us would be Paris. My, my wife speaks French fluently. We love France. Um, so we love Paris as well. So, you know, who knows, maybe one day we'll, we'll bit between the two of them. Wow, that, that, that's really nice. And that's coming from Phil that just left New York City. Uh, anyhow, uh, let's, let's, get to know, let, let's get to know you a little bit uh, for our audience. So could you tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you do, and where you're at in your career? Sure. Let me start with where I am. And I guess you'll have to see if you can dig into the depths of how in the world I got here. But so I, I, I don't even know what to call myself anymore. I am a, some people call me a futurist. I don't actually um, always subscribe to that term, but I'm, I'm a industry analyst. I'm an author. I'm a speaker. Uh, at, the, at, the end of, at the end of the day, at my core, I'm an enterprise IT guy. That's really where I spent the majority of my career. I'm either directly running IT or advising enterprise executives as they sort of went through transformative journeys. But I ended up writing a book about 10 years ago or almost 10 years ago now. And that sort of changed my career path. And I had no idea what I was doing. And so I ended up sort of putting on a bunch of different hats. So today I spend most of my time meeting with both a mix of enterprise executives as well as technology companies, understanding kind of what they're doing, uh, writing about it. I write for CIO Magazine. I've written three books. I produce all kinds of different articles and white papers and stuff like that around it. And then, uh, well, until the pandemic, I was uh, probably giving about 15 keynotes a year. And so that was a, kind of another part of what I did. Um, so it, that's kind of it. But it's really all about uh, the future of technology under the broad banner of digital transformation, I guess. I mean, that's where I shifted to about six years ago. So where is all of it going and how does it impact all of us in the world and uh, how it impacts us as leaders? Well, we'll get to that in just a minute. Let's start with what led you to your profession. How did you get involved in IT? The story I tell, and, and it's a truth, that's always a plus side on a story, I suppose, is that my father, back when, I'm trying to remember what, how, what year it was or how old I was, I was probably like in sixth grade, he brought home a Commodore 64. 
you guys are probably about my age. You might remember those. Fell in love with this thing. And at, you know, my joke was we played Monopoly. And so I, I wrote a little piece of software so that we could go paperless, right? We had no paper money. We, we had this little piece of this little application I'd written to code that and, and just, just sort of fell in love with it. And so, um, even all the way as I fast forward into high school, I, I had kind of gotten more and more into it. And this was in the uh, early days of, of uh, PC compatibles. You remember those IBM compatible PCs where you could buy all the parts and assemble them and sell them. And so I had my own little company and branded logo and the whole bit. Um, and I was selling all these computers and, and I was also learning to code. So I wrote in COBOL. No, I'm bad. I'm just dating myself left and right here. And, uh, so 16 years old, wanted a car, didn't want to flip burgers. So I did what any self-respecting geek would do. And I found a, a local manufacturing firm that needed an order management system. And I wrote one in COBOL for them. And, uh, and so literally that was what I did through high school. And then my parting gift to my high school was that when I graduated, I signed a contract to rebuild a computer lab and literally turned my parents' house into a giant factory producing computers. I was, you know, I, I tease people say, well, what was that? It was like Dell without the billion dollar success story. I mean, that's what I was doing. You know, it's, um, I, I think to a certain extent, people that are our age um, are just kind of a, a product of the environment. I mean, we just happen to exist at, at the forefront of when, you know, this kind of this industry, computers in general became something more than just, you know, a, a vehicle to uh, to do equations uh, for, for scientists and for people in, in office environments. Um, and how, how, do you think that's what what led you to it just happened to be the environment around you? I mean, obviously, the Commodore 64, you know, came into your household, but um, just that kind of zeitgeist that was that was uh, surrounding you at the the real, I mean, it wasn't even really the internet at that point. It was like just oh, no. on the precipice of, of the internet. I'm guessing what kind of, you know, mid nineties, you know, 92, 93, um, you know, something like, yeah, like this is all mid eighties for me when I started with it. And so it was, it was way before the internet and, and absolutely. I mean, it was a combination of, of, it was at least in the geeky circles that I moved, it was, you know, the fun kind of cool thing. So that was part of it. And then I had a natural, you know, inclination or natural skill set with it. I was good at it. And, you know, we're all naturally, I think, drawn to things that we are good at. Um, and so that sort of led me, I, I thought I was going to go and do the whole official computer science thing. And, and that sort of didn't really work out all that well for me, but I ended up finding jobs within, because I was just, I naturally sort of understood it, but, but I would say what, what was interesting for me. So I would say I was, I was hands-on technical from the time I was a kid up until the time I was like 22 or 23. And in that time frame, what I realized is I actually had an, an, an my, my real super power, if you will, <laughs> wasn't being the programmer or building the, the computers. I could do all of those things, but my real skill was I could explain it in English to somebody who didn't understand it. And so I ended up having stints in sales and I was a systems engineer and I was part of the, the very, I built the very first network for Motown records. And I ended up uh, advising on the YF-22 project for the, the very first stealth plane. And, and my role in almost all of these was the translator. I wasn't doing the hands-on work even at 22 I was translating. And so I, I kind of quickly learned that that was my, my big sort of uh, skill there. 
And I think that uh, what we try to we, we try to say in, in a number of the podcasts is that ability to kind of straddle both worlds, like understand the technical world, but being able to communicate uh, is such a unique combination um, that it really is to a certain extent a superpower. Because you think of, you know, the traditional computer guys being the person in the basement that, you you know, without any lights in the room that are, that are back there coding or plugged in or whatever, you know, phraseology you're using. But in reality, if you can explain it, if you can, you know, not have that uh, kind of the computer guy from SNL attitude where you're so frustrated by the idea of having to explain it to someone that doesn't understand it, that you can't even bring yourself to do it. Um, that, you know, you, you are a success by virtue of the fact that, you know, you can communicate um, uh, in, in almost to a larger extent uh, uh, than your technical ability. Well, and, and I think it's actually getting Harder and more important, ironically. I mean, in the early, early days, I remember I was sitting back in, I, I, I don't, I must have taken it with me. I don't remember, but I was sitting with a family friend and I had this computer and, and he couldn't even get his head around what it was. He literally thought it would like tell the future. He says, ask it, you know, if such and such is going to happen. And I'm like, that's not what this is. Right. I mean, so it was like this, this, that's a Nostradamus 64. I got, I had one of those. <laughs> exactly. Right. But, but now you sort of step forward and it's in this sort of, so I have, I have my, my eldest child is, is 31 and, and there's this whole new dynamic that's happening because we have an entire generation of folks that, use technology every day. In fact, in you know the youngest generation, they literally have never known a period in which they didn't have access to this technology. And yet they have almost no understanding of how it actually works beneath the screen. And so this ability- You understand the how, they don't understand the why. Yeah, well, or, and I would argue that most times they don't even under, they understand the what, they understand the screen, they understand the interface, but they don't understand how it works and how complex it yeah. is. So I think, you know, growing up in IT, one of the challenges I often had was that, well, you know, people didn't understand the technology and so therefore didn't give us nearly the credit. They only knew we existed when everything failed or when something went wrong. And so we had to continually try to educate people about the complexity. And I think that has got even exponentially harder because the complexity underneath the covers is shocking. And, and yet we have developed these interfaces that are intuitive and easy to use and people think, oh, well, this is just easy stuff. I just ask Alexa and it tells me, and it's like, Wow. And so I think the, the ability to serve as that translator to actually be able to explain the complexity of the technology that sits underneath in business terms. So speaking from enterprise context in business terms, I think is becoming the, the super important skill that is necessary to help bridge this gap. And actually, I think those organizations that have those people have a have an army of those people are going to be the ones that win because they can navigate this craziness. That to a certain extent, though, you have an issue, right, with the fact that, you know, people don't have to have the experience anymore to be a systems administrator or a computer engineer these days. They don't have to have that experience of building a computer because the, the compute layer is so obfuscated behind, you know, cloud software and GUIs and 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 all of this magic that magically makes compute appear, that it would be impossible for someone that is serving in a role where you would think that they'd be able to under explain the underlying technology. But to them, the deployment of compute resource is clicking a couple of buttons on AWS or, or Google or, or Azure. Um, and they haven't had to learn that kind of underlying skill set, the you know the copper touching copper glass 
glass touching glass, actual, like what makes compute happen in those environments. And it's a lost art. It's why we're becoming dinosaurs and our hairlines are starting to take over. <laughs> well, you know, you're bringing up a couple of interesting points that are at issue within enterprise IT today. I think on the one hand, um, if you are, have, if you have come up through the ranks and you're used like me, I was literally crawling through ceilings, pulling cable, right? If you've done that work, if you've done the hands-on coding and all of that, you can have, you, you need to sort of overcome your own resistance to the change that's happening because those days are fading rapidly into the past because of all the abstraction layers you're talking about. And so the skill set today isn't about knowing all of that because you don't need to know all of that. It, you know, it's about how do you adapt your skills? On the other hand, I think that those that the, the younger generations come up and never had to do any of that, never has had to either do the development or done a, the, the metal to metal, then they lack a certain amount of perspective, which I do agree with you. We need to get back because if you don't have at least some basic understanding of, of how all of the stuff is working and connected, then, then you're actually can be dangerous you know, yeah. because you're, yeah. you're making bad decisions because you don't understand the underlying complexity. So Charlie, you mentioned, you know, six years of, hardcore programming, and at a very young age, you were able to identify where the gap was and, and that ended up being the, the translator or the communicator or the negotiator, whatever we want to call it. How did you find that big break? What was the driving force behind that? Where did you see the gap? And, and how did you decide to take on that journey? You know, I don't know that... Uh, I, I would love to say that I was really brilliant and figured this all out on my own, but I, I don't I don't think I did. I, I had I was blessed with some incredibly generous mentors um, in my early days, one of which uh, a woman by the name of Joan Adler, uh, Joan Groves when I first met her. And she sort of she sort of saw this in me and took me under her wing. So I, I literally started working for work for her twice. And the first time I was a Novell, another dating of myself, a Novell engineer building Novell networks for a, a healthcare firm. And she she sort of kind of took me under her wings and and gave me access. I remember sitting out, I smoked at the time, and I was out in front of our, you gotta love the irony, our healthcare, the corporate headquarters of this large healthcare company and we're, we're outside. And they thought it was smoking. healthy. I know exactly, um, but it was. I was out there literally with the CIO, the CFO, and the COO of the company participating in these conversations as a twenty-year-old punk, you know. And and so she exposed me to how all of this technology, which to to your point, Philip, earlier, that I was just enamored with it for the sake of the technology, and suddenly she's bringing these conversations where we're talking about the business impact of this technology, how this is actually transforming the way that our chain of hospitals was working. And so that sort of opened my eyes to that. And I think she saw that in me and just gave me opportunities to, to do that. And so when she hired me at the second healthcare company um, that she brought me into, that was when I first moved into management and realized that that was my kind of my ability to, to kind of bridge that gap. And so, and I look back now and I see pictures of myself and at this time I was like, like 25 I had a team of permanent contractors of, of like a hundred people. I had a $10 million budget. I look super young and, and they sent me into these meetings with all these executives to go explain how all the stuff worked. And so I just sort of landed into it, but realized that, that, that I could provide a lot of value and I could pro provide a lot more value doing that than sitting there and building a network. And so I, again, I just, I really got lucky because I found, and, and she wasn't the only one. There were a number of folks over the years that just, 
you know, sort of saw the same and gave me opportunities to, uh, to do things that were far beyond my skill set, but that uh, I was able to grow into it. Well, nothing really has changed since then, has it? Still doing the same thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In many ways, we are. And the gap's getting bigger and bigger. We've got more technology, more platforms, more applications. Knowing what you know today, how would you address the, the gap, the, the extent of the gaps, um, the, the fact that we are creating more silos today? How, how do we address that? How would you do things differently if you were given an opportunity to do it all over again? Well, uh, two, two very different questions. Let me answer the, the last one first, I guess. Um, I don't know that I would. I, I think I'm very fortunate in how my career played out. And I, like I said, I don't take credit for it. It was mostly serendipity, but I don't know that I change a thing. I mean, and to that extent, and, and to kind of Philip's point about abstraction, if I was giving advice to someone coming up in enterprise IT and wanting to sort of figure it out, the very, the very first um, recommendation I would have is something that, again, that I did by accident, but try to do it all. Don't pick one area. And I think there's a tendency because of the complexity of the technology to fit when I'm a DBA or I'm a cloud specialist or, you know, whatever, try to do it all. Because the most important thing, at least if you want to be in management or be this translator is to understand how all of these different parts fit together. And, and until you get your hands dirty, I mean, I still do a little bit of, you know, lamp stack coding just to sort of keep my head, my head into this of how we are constructing modern apps today, right? Staying close enough to the different pieces, I think is critical. The second one is have a figure out how to get into that conversation where you're sitting out and having the, the, you know, in the middle of the conversation with the COO, the CFO and the CIO. And I, and I don't mean it has to be at that level, but what I mean is go find someone in one of these business units that uses this technology you build and support and take them to lunch and live in their world for a while to see how all this fits. I, I remember I was, uh, running a large project for federal government agency for a few years. And I was commuting to Washington, DC and I stayed in the same hotel every three weeks. And I got to know the general manager of the hotel and we both loved wine. And so we would get together and we'd have wine and we'd kibitz. And he eventually figured out what I did. And over, you know, three glasses in or so, he looks at me and says, Charlie, my IT organization, they just don't get it. They're so out of touch. It says, if they just came and spent one day with me in my hotel and understand how all this technology they build supports what I do when I'm trying to serve my guests, everything would change, right? I was just lucky that I was pulled into these sort of situations that I got that perspective at a very young age. I think that everyone should be looking to try to get that level of experience. And I think that will make you just a better person, a better manager, a better leader. And it's going to give you the perspective that you need to kind of deal with all this other stuff, which, which leads us to the first question you asked is how do you, how do you address all of that? And, and I think that the short answer is we're not quite sure yet. I mean, I think it, it's about aligning to the business challenges that you're facing, trying to get out of a technology driven mindset and get back to, or, to a business-driven mindset, that that's the overarching thing that drives forward, not because, oh, this is what the new technology that whoever it is just released. I think I think it's a it's a spectacular point, and and you know it's been raised several times on on previous podcasts. This uh, this notion of how you know to a certain extent. Um, 
there are limitations based on corporate culture of wanting to compartmentalize certain employees so that they don't go off the reservation or that they are replaceable and not to, um, you know, there's not, there's not too much of a dependency on a single employee or set of employees because they have their hand in many pots. Uh, but at the same time, you know, what you're doing is you're, you're creating kind of a generation of, of, of robots as opposed to future leaders that have exposure to all of these different elements of what you're doing. And if you brought people on board with you and had like everybody within an organization understand what the vision is and what the overall, like, what are you working towards? I think people in general work harder and faster when everyone's rowing the boat in the same direction and they all feel like they're part of, you know, something that they can see an impact of. So, you know, when, you know, within our organization, you know, we have a very small kind of team running, running a data center and everybody can see an impact on a particular client when they help out with a trouble ticket or, you know, when a customer is having an issue and, you know, you make a change and they say like everything's fixed. There's a feeling of just, you know, accomplishment that comes along with that. And I don't think many, particularly larger organizations, really understand the value from a productivity standpoint of, you know, allowing individual employees to feel that sense of accomplishment by giving them um, just kind of a a greater vantage point of, of how what they're doing impacts the organization. Well, and I think it's far beyond productivity. I think, I think probably the biggest, I mean, if I had to pick one thing that, that, enterprise IT professionals need to practice from a skill set standpoint, it's empathy. It's this recognition that you're not producing this stuff just because it's fun and cool. You're producing this because it's generating business value and it's making somebody's life better in some way. And you need to understand what that is. And and to, to your point, especially in these large IT organizations, we can get highly specialized and it can be very easy to lose sight of that because you, your your piece of the puzzle may be disconnected by eight or ten steps from the actual value generation process. And when that happens, um, it, it can be very, very problematic in terms of it can lead you to make really the wrong decisions because you don't have that sense of empathy for whoever's actually using it. It's the same reason I'm a huge proponent of two schools of thought that, that I think are vehicles to help change that. Uh, the, the one is systems thinking, which has been around for a long time, but this idea to understand complex systems and the fact that it's that change in one part of the system has a downstream and upstream impact in other parts of the system. And you have to be looking at all of that cohesively when you're making these decisions, that if you're making changes in isolation or you're making decisions in isolation, that you're setting yourselves up for problems. And then the second is this idea of design thinking, which comes out of the Stanford D school. And it's all this idea of putting the customer at the center of the process. And I think if, if everyone in enterprise IT sort of embrace these two schools of thought and apply them, we start seeing dramatically different outcomes um, in most organizations. But it's just not how we bring up most people in enterprise IT today. And so, therefore, we end up kind of re- perpetuating some of the challenges we've been struggling with for 30 years. Yeah, well, the challenge, part of the challenge is on the other side of the equation as well. The, the C-suite, that's been, and, and, and it's the older generation that's got broadened the gap as well, whereby, I remember the, uh, the show Mad Men on Netflix? Yeah, of course. Right, that's carried over. The, the, the old guard has not changed their mindset. They, they want bums in the seat. The IT guy is still the guy in their mindset that's sitting under or in a, under a stairwell somewhere. And that guy just wants to spend money. Uh, that guy does not understand business and they have not given that individual the opportunity 
to, to mingle around and play in Switzerland and understand the business dynamics. So it goes both ways. It's not just the IT guy. The IT guy's probably not been given an opportunity. I think to your point, and I think where you excelled in your career was the fact that you were given this opportunity to speak different languages. You were given this opportunity to understand the business case, and then you were able to bring IT into it. We are at that point in time where right now, the way, I mean, being a futurist, the way we look at things is that data is the next gold rush. This is it. Without data, no business is going to be able to sustain on a go-forward basis. And this is actually an opportunity for a lot of people to step up and understand and drive this change because of user experiences, drive this change because of business needs and requirements versus IT and technologies just being cool. To add to what we have been talking about here, don't you still think that we actually need some sort of a foundation for people to get into IT to have a general understanding? And if so, hopefully that's not COBOL, but what programming or languages and or environments should they be looking at? I say this on previous podcasts, the New Jersey Unemployment Department is still looking for COBOL programmers to help solve the, uh, the, the massive influx of applications. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I, I'm not ready to go there yet, but that is sort of my emergency retirement plan. Pull out my COBOL coding skills. There will always be a market. Um, so, okay, I'm probably going to, I may give you a contrarian answer here. I, I think, so I do think foundational understanding of architectures is critical. Um, so if I was going into enterprise IT today, that's where I'd be putting my, my starting point is understanding sort of these foundational architectures of how, what are the different ways you can approach it and how do you put them together? I don't know that I would actually today say that development or learning a specific language is actually a super critical um, skill. In fact, the rise of the, these low-code platforms um, and the more we watch them, the more we see they're getting incredibly powerful I, you know, I wrote an article two years ago for CIO that was entitled, is it the end coding in the enterprise? Now, clearly, if you want to work for a tech company, coding is going to be critical and that's a whole different conversation. But within the enterprise, I think increasingly we're going to see this move to a, another layer of abstraction, right? No different than we've seen across all the other different elements of the stack where the value is coming not from being able to remember syntax, but rather to architect a workflow that solves a business problem in a unique way that allows you to inject IP into that, that solves a problem for your customers in a way that nobody else does. And if you look at the disruptive technologies that people love to trot out, the Ubers, the Airbnbs, and I don't want to, you know, I'm not slamming them in any way, shape or form, but the technology itself, the code they wrote wasn't that remarkable, right? I mean, and, and you know, a lot of the issues that they've dealt with, frankly, have to deal with scale and, and those kind of issues. But if you look at the code itself in terms of the interface that they're generating, it, the, the real power is that they, they re-envisioned the entire experience, that they re-envisioned what it meant to be in this business and then use this technology to bring that fruition. So if you're an and enterprise- to that point, they're all fairly similar. And so, so if you're an enterprise today and you're saying, how do I compete with this? Well, yeah, it, you can go hire a bunch of developers, but I think the biggest thing is to create this innovative mindset where within your organization, people are willing to start changing the way they look at things and innovate at that level. And then there's plenty of tools to bring that to fruition for the most part. Um, so, so for me, and that's why I think this ability to, um, to be able to, 
to, to serve as that translator of being able to see the, these, these business shifts and understand how technology can help solve it is actually the greater skill. Now, all of that said, if you're still insistent that it's got to be a, you know, that from a development standpoint, I do agree with you, it's all going to be data centric, which means I'm pushing to things like Python and maybe R, and I'm looking at these environments that are going to be the, the where do I potentially need that, at least in the short term, is to be able to build um, machine learning models or other forms of AI that allow me to take that data and leverage it to either monetize it or to transform the experience using it. And to, for the most part right now, that is still something I have to do with code. So that's where I'd be putting my energy if I wanted to be a coder in, in the enterprise today. Uh, but at the same time, I would imagine that, you know, uh, to, to your point, the, the feeling is if you learn a particular coding language, you know, you, you, you'll be dinosaured out in a second. All those things change um, rapidly. <laughs> what doesn't change is, you know, conceptually how you think about creating an application. Exactly. If you if you can master the skill of understanding how to apply data to solve business problems in a unique way, how to leverage it to great advantage, then you can frankly go hire the person that knows how to do the coding part of it, right? As as, as and so that is the 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 much more irreplaceable skill. If but 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 here's the thing, I, I do think we have to recognize, right? There are some people that they like the coding, and I mean when I, when I get into my geeky mode, I like it too because it's sort of like solving a puzzle, right? And I get that and if that's your thing then that's okay but you to your point you better be prepared to be on the hamster wheel continually learning new languages and new taxes and new frameworks because it is changing at lightning speed and that begs the question of um you know how to approach learning uh in general you know i think that um, you know, the traditional way of learning is, you know, you give someone information and memorization and they learn a particular thing. And, you know, when you hear about the, you know, interviews at Google and Amazon and they ask you like weird questions about, you know, how many jelly beans are in this jar and don't tell me the number, just tell me how you're going to come up with the number. It's that notion of trying to create a generation of people that think in a certain way, as opposed to know a particular thing, because you can literally Google it now. It doesn't like a particular piece of information is not as exciting as it was 30 years ago um, because it's at everyone's fingertips, um, notwithstanding the fact that some of it is fake and some of it isn't, but we can get into that uh, maybe <laughs> later on in the conversation. So yeah. uh, let's not have the truth conversation. But um, so, you know, do you think that there's something missing from maybe the early educational system? I know your oldest is, is far out of the educational system and my oldest is eight. So I guess not withstanding the hairline, I'm younger um, or just got started much later. So, um, you know, the question is, is there something in the educational system that you think needs to be ingrained in, in children and, and, and changed in order to allow the younger generation to adapt to this new way of thinking that's going to serve them really across verticals, whether they're technical people or not? Absolutely. Yes. Um, so Seth Godin, who is, I guess I call him a marketing futurist. He's a brilliant guy. If, if you don't know who he is, he's, he's a, a marketing guru. He's written countless books. Um, and he talks about this, the, the fact that uh, our educational system is really a relic of the industrial age. It, it really was born out of the need of industrial barons to create a generation of workers who knew how to follow the rules, would show up on time, do what they were told, check the boxes, A, B, C. And if you think of that, most of the way we educate people today. It's exactly that. It's, it's teaching us, our kids, how to follow the rules, how to do what they're told, how to give the right answer on the test. But to your point, 
knowing a specific piece of information is increasingly unvaluable or, you know, it's, it's just, we can, we can look this up. And so the great skill we need is critical thinking. And so that's everything that you're discussing there about the, the way some of the, 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 uh, the cloud native organizations are approaching their hiring is they're looking for people that bring unique thought patterns into the fold. Um, and, and unfortunately that is not what you're learning in the educational system today. So yes, I, I actually, uh, we'll see if this, how big of an impact the pandemic has. I think it's going to have at least potentially a very dramatic impact on higher education in particular. Um, and it, it's starting to really force people to change the way they look at the role of education in this. Um, my son, so my youngest is, uh, just about to turn 23 and he's actually an interesting case study of this. So he's at one of the top schools, uh, top universities in the country. He's at Emory University. And he did his first two years and then took a year and a half off to work at a tech company and, and sort of saw the whole, both sides of it. And, and I was actually very concerned that he wasn't going to go back and finish because he was making good money and he's having fun. He's out in the real world doing all this stuff and realizing that all the stuff he's learning in school really wasn't helping that much with any of the stuff he was doing. Um, he thankfully has gone back and he's about to finish. Um, you know, but he, he definitely saw that sort of disconnect. And I think the big, and I'm really glad I was very nervous about it, but I'm really glad he took this year and a half off because he has brought an entirely different perspective to how he approaches education now with this mindset. He's, he's doing the stuff he has to do to take the courses, check the boxes, whatever. But he's now seizing this as an opportunity to prepare himself, having had some of this real world experience to understand what's going to actually benefit him. And that's partially engaging with his professors and taking on different projects. He's doing this whole big research thing about urban renewal that is, you know, something that I don't think he would have done otherwise if he didn't sort of have this shift of perspective. So, yeah, I think I think our educational system is in for uh, potentially a big shift, especially with this pandemic changing the way, you know, everyone's working from home and now we're taking classes from home. And it's like, well, is this, is this really providing the value that I thought I, that, you know, for 70 grand a year, especially. Right. So uh, I we'll see, we'll see what happens, but I think we're in for a big shift. One of the unique things I'm seeing, I'll just, just on that point is that I am, um, I, I keep on yelling at my son to get off his screen in the evening and then yelling at him to get on the screen in the morning. And it's just the mixed messaging is probably going to create a generation of very, very rich psychologists. Yep. So we need to work on parental control applications. Uh, Charles, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about uh, COVID-19 and the current normal. And being a futurist, what are you looking at as we potentially find some sort of a normalcy and hopefully get out of it one day? Well, A, I'm 100% confident that, that, you know, that we'll get the vaccine soon enough. And, you know, by my, my hope is that by next summer, we're, we're returning to something. Uh, although it's, I don't know, is it the, we're certainly not going to be returning back to what it was. Is it a new normal? I guess it depends on what you want to call it. I, I think we're going to see some pretty significant shifts um, on a couple of different dimensions. The first is, you know, I've been, I've been someone that has worked remotely, worked from home for 20 years, and I'm very disciplined with it. I know how to do this. And I've integrated my, my work and personal lives. Um, and I've loved it for, I couldn't, you know, there's no way I could go back to a quote unquote normal job. Um, 
but I think for most organizations, even high tech companies, they resisted it. I mean, both IBM and Yahoo were, you know, had these huge, you know, big, big news where they brought all of their remote workers back because they wanted everyone butts in seats, you know, and, and, and I was, you know, shaking my head when that was happening. It's like, I don't get it. These are tech companies for crying out loud. Um, and what the pandemic is, has really done here is it's taken away the excuse, right? The excuse is always, well, we had governance issues, we had compliance issues, you know, we, 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 we had all these different things, right? We, we couldn't do it for any number of reasons. Well, guess what? Everyone figured out how to do it. So that excuse that we can't do it is gone. And so I think the, there's going to be some organizations that try to bring everyone back and try to quote unquote, go back to normal. And I think they're going to have a revolt on their hands. If it not outright, they're going to lose their best people because um, there's, I think for the vast majority of people and in a weird sort of way, the fact that this has gone on so long and is going to continue to go on for another probably eight months or longer, it's enough time that people are adjusting, right? If this had been two, three months, companies could have gone back to it, right? But but now most people are are coming out of that insanity phase where it's like the kids are screaming in the background and and they've learned how to integrate their lives because they've had enough time to sort of go through some trial and error and figure out what works for them, that it's, it's working. And I think for most people, not all, but most people, the idea of going back to an office, once they've found this sort of this balance and this integration, that's going to be a really, really hard sell. Um, and I think there's another dimension to that is that for most of my career, working from home, I always had to be really careful. I was very aware of what was behind me, especially in the age of video. I always was very aware of making sure I didn't sound like I was in my bedroom or wherever I was. And the pandemic has brought ushered in the sort of era of grace, right? I, I did a briefing with a, a CEO of a tech company the other day and his daughter was sitting on his lap the whole time, you know? And it's just like, this has become like, this isn't the end of the world. We're human, we have lives and it's okay for them to, to not be this completely isolated things. And so I think the, the combination of those two things is going to make it very, very difficult. If you're an enterprise executive tr thinking that you're going to bring everyone back, I think you're in for a rude awakening. Um, now that said, I think this has also shown some people who maybe glamorized it or, you know, thought, oh, this is be so awesome. They've realized no, they need to be in an office. <laughs> you know, they they can't function this way. They don't like it. They need that separation. And so I think we're going to end up in, in kind of the era of future of work is organizations are going to move to this sort of roll your own model. We're going to have hoteling. We're going to have office space. We're going to have a place if you want to get away, if you want to collaborate, if you need to collaborate with teams, we have a space that we're going to allow for that. If you're going to work more productively at home, we're going to make sure we can enable that because it's going to be about people working to their best selves. And I, and I think that's the way it should be. So I'm excited about this future, um, but I think we're going to have some growing pains as we go through it. Well, that's always been the case. Do you think there's going to be more KPIs, uh, more metrics uh, on people's performance as we move forward into the state of normalcy? Uh, you know, interesting question. I think we're already seeing some of the early signs of uh, people picking sides on this. So there's definitely some of the surveillance technologies that people are trying to deploy. And for the most part right now, that's backfiring. So the, the short answer is yes, I do agree that we're go I think we're going to see different KPIs, but I don't think they're going to be the KPIs that maybe some people thought where it was, you know, hours at your computer kind of BS. I think it's going to force people into 
actually measuring productivity in the form of output and performance, not in how many hours was I in an office, how many, you know, X, Y, Z's that I did. It's, did you produce the outcome? Now, now, as a leader and a manager, that's how I've always tried to manage. But frankly, it's hard, right? That's That can be a difficult thing to do, which is why a lot of managers historically sort of defaulted to, you showed up, you wrote this many lines of code, you did something that was much more easy to quantify. I think this is forcing people to recognize that they're going to have to manage as humans and they're going to have to measure performance as humans. And there's, I mean, I think we're the big washout we're going to see isn't with workers. It's going to be with managers. I think there's going to be entire generation managers that are going to get washed out because they can't manage in this environment. Yeah. And I think that's, I think what's, what's unique about that is that so many of like kind of middle management uh, folks have always seemed like redundant in and of themselves. And they've always succeeded based on whether they had, you know, uh, the, the, the right staff underneath them doing the work. Um, it, almost despite them, as opposed to as a result of their management uh, tactic. And I think anytime you've seen, you know, M&A activity, the first layer of management to, to get walked out the door is the middle management that is, you know, ma- managing people that are managing themselves. So just kind of, you know, checking boxes uh, on, on on a clipboard, like uh, like the guy from Office Space asking for TTS reports, right? So a huge believer of the flattening of self-organization, self-management models, Holacra if you're familiar with that. I'm, I, I believe this is where it's going to be, not only because middle management in this day and age, just like you said, for at least for knowledge workers, they're managing themselves. We have the tools to do that. We can, we can instrument their work in ways that we can manage and monitor without having someone sitting there and watching them, all of those things. I think even more so because all, all the other stuff we were talking about previously, the agility and the ability to move at speed and scale that enterprises need today. If you have a lot of the enterprise execs I worked with would call this the the sticky nougat layer, right? Where, you know, they would have this idea of where it's going to go and they couldn't actually communicate the messages down through the the organization because they get stuck in the sticky nougat of middle management. And so when you start eliminating that, now you can actually move at scale and speed at velocity to actually make changes and pivot as you need to because you can connect those dots much more quickly. So yeah, I, I think I think middle management. I'm not going to say it's over, it's done, but I think it's going to it's in for a, a, a very significant change as we go down this road. I think the. I just just one more just one more point on that, uh, which is you know one of the things that came out of that I think is going to be a, a positive consequence of the pandemic is you know notwithstanding the fact that the educational system needs to change significantly, but the fact that we're going to be in this essentially for more than a school year. Um, uh, has essentially created a generation of kids of all ages. Now, my son is essentially self-sufficient, going to school, connecting to Zooms on his own laptop, and there's all of these kind of experiential opportunities that he's having to learn relevant skills that wouldn't otherwise be taught in school that are enti- like so unbelievably one-for-one applicable to what he'll see in kind of the real world. Um, and learning it at the age of eight. So it's going to be essentially, you know, kind of just a, just a regular response. It's going to be like breathing just to, just to be self-sufficient. So that type of discipline is just an, an extraordinary opportunity 
um, for, for this new generation. You know, I, I, so I couldn't agree more. I think that, uh, I think it, it exposed a couple of things. One, how much our non, you know, so our primary schooling, how much they were not doing any of those things, right? They're the real education in terms of quote unquote, real world was happening outside of school or in the social circles. Um, it, it's also, I think exposed the, um, it exposed the fact that how much parents have really relied on schooling as, as childcare and, and how, and so it, 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 the dynamic between the two um, I think is something that the people are going to start have, you know, this is more of a political thing, but having to, to deal with that. But, but I do agree with you. Um, and I'm excited. I don't have any school age kids at this point, but I am excited because I think that it, it provides an opportunity to start the pivot. So my, my, my son, um, who's now at Emory, uh, I remember around the, probably the same age. He was probably like nine or 10, maybe a little older, but he was, um, he got involved in this game. It was one of the early multiplayer sort of games. And, and it was all about, I don't know, building spaceships to go colonize planets or something, but he got totally into it to the point that he built a website and formed this like, um, federation of stars or something and actually established a hierarchy. Of course, he was the president and had all these people that, that reported to him and they would organize and coordinate their strategies and do this. He literally was holding online meetings with them and he had one of his like vice commanders or whatever it was, um, you know, report in that he was going to have to, he wasn't going to be able to make their meeting because he had to go to work. And I was laughing to myself thinking, I wonder if this guy knows that he's reporting to a 10 year old, you know, and here he is off to go to work. But the reality is he was doing exactly what you're talking about, the skill, right? He was coordinating this group of people that didn't have to report to him. He was using digital technologies to build a collaboration, to build this collaborative strategy. They were executing the strategy using these technologies to coordinate their activities, right? These are the real world skills that I think is, is why he's being successful now and that he learned it on a video game, not in school. And so I, what I, I do, I fear and I hope, I fear that, that too many of our primary um, schooling systems are trying to replicate their, their in-school modalities in this digital world, and that's going to fail and that they're going to just try to return right back. My hope is that there's enough progressive um, educators out there that see this as the opportunity for what it is and, and embrace everything you just described. So my fingers are crossed. May I say that the apple doesn't appear to have fallen far from the tree. <laughs> Yeah, well, hopefully, as we made a big transition with the industrial revolution, hopefully we can make a big transition with the digital revolution. What advice would you give someone starting their career or entering into the technology space? Uh, so as far as specific technologies, so I think you nailed it. Data, AI, machine learning, these are the things that are going to be driving the future from a from a hardcore technology and, and everything that fits underneath that, right? So how all the pieces fit together. So if I'm looking at least from an enterprise perspective, the integration layer becomes all important. Um, that, you know, organizations are having to connect not only internally, with which is in becoming increasingly complex, but with partners, with um, you know, these large ecosystems they have to build. And so the integration layer is almost becoming more important than even the core application layer. And then the ability to, to provide intelligence on top of that by activating the data is critical. So everything that sort of fits around that. Um, all of that said, um, 
even more broadly than that, I, I would say there's two big things. The first is you have to you have to be in awe of the technology. If you were if you were doing this because you think oh this is where the money is at, or even if you think it's cool, I I, I think you need to check yourself. You should be in awe. This stuff is amazing. When we look, I mean, look at even what we're doing right this very second. We're in three different places in this country having a virtual conversation in real time with video. And in a few seconds, at least if you chose to, you could run it through post-processing, have it up on the internet in seconds. I mean, this is remarkably amazing stuff. And the things that we can do with it now is are staggering and they're truly transformative. They can change the world. They are changing the world every single moment, every single day. You should be in awe of that and you need to not lose that. And at the second time at the second, on the second side of that, or the other side of that is you need to also hold that in check. And remember that the only reason any of this technology exists is to somehow make the world better for somebody, for some customer, some employee, some partner. And it doesn't matter how cool the technology is if it doesn't fulfill its purpose. And so being able to simultaneously be in awe of this technology, but never lose sight of, of the fact that it exists for some reason beyond itself, I think if you can master those two, then everything else will just follow. Everything else will just flow from that because that will give you, the, the to me, the proper rooting to be a rock star technologist. That's amazing. It, it's, it, and, and Phil, it's, it's kind of interesting that every single podcast that we release, one of the common things that we have come about is to find that passion, to find that excitement, to be that change agent, to contribute and make this world a better place. Well, Charlie, thank you very much for taking the time to join us. This has been phenomenal. Really enjoy the conversation. Pleasure being with you. Thanks for having me. This has been great. Nothing lasts forever. Markets will come back, currencies will rebound, businesses will go on, and we'll all move on. That could happen next week, next month, or next year. I'm confident that those who prepare rather than panic will come out of this stronger. Thank you for joining us. This has been brought to you by Nomad Futurist. Check us online at nomadfuturist.com.